Welcome back to the Book Club Commune with me, your host, Ivy Poesy. Today is a very special episode as we are reading the epilogue of Black Bolshevik. And after many hours, episodes, and weeks of me recording, we are finally finishing Black Bolshevik, an autobiography of an Afro-American communist by Harry Haywood. It has been a long journey, and I'm so excited to be able to finish it. So without any further ado, let's finish up Black Bolshevik. Epilogue. The evil system of colonialism and imperialism grew up along with the enslavement of blacks and in the trade of blacks, and it will surely come to its end with the thorough emancipation of the black people. Mao Zedong. By the late 50s, those of us who had defended the revolutionary position on black liberation had been driven from the CP, either expelled or forced to resign. The party's leaders insisted that blacks were well on their way to being assimilated into the old, reliable American melting pot. But by but the melting pot suddenly exploded in their faces. In the 60s, the black revolt surged up from the deep south and quickly spread its fury across the entire country, advancing wave upon wave with sit-ins, freedom marches, wildcat strikes, and finally, hundreds of spontaneous insurrections, the black masses announced to their capitalist masters and to the entire world that they would never rest until their chains of bondage were completely smashed. This new awakening of the Afro-American people evoked the greatest domestic crisis since the 30s, and it became the focal point for the major contradictions in U.S. society, the most urgent, immediate, and pressing questions confronting the U.S. corporate rulers and the revolutionary forces. In its face, the ruling class employed counter-revolutionary tactics, both terrorist attacks on black people, especially in the Deep South, and reformist legal maneuvers in Washington. First developing as a civil rights struggle against Jim Crow, the revolt increasingly took on a nationalist character, culminating in the black power movement and the projecting into the heart of the modern U.S. society the demands of the unfinished democratic revolution of the Civil War and Reconstruction. In the, mass, in the decade of mass movement, which saw demonstrations and uprisings in virtually every ghetto in the country, the Afro-American people put all existing programs for Black freedom to the test. Their struggle shattered the myth of peaceful, imminent integration, revealing the bankruptcy of Free by 63 program of the old reformist leaders and their supporters in the revisionist CPUSA. The Black upsurge had its fueling sources domestically, in the combined influences of the failure of the legal democratic integration and the catastrophic deterioration of the economic position of the black masses, both absolute and relative to whites. In the 50s, the further monopolization and mechanization of agriculture had precipitated a deep agrarian crisis, throwing tens of thousands of rural blacks off the land in the South. At the same time, the impending economic crisis, together with the growing automation of industry, created an entire generation of ghetto youth in their urban areas, a lost generation, both north and south, with no work or prospects for work within the existing economic system. With the dispossessed black population growing by leaps and bounds, the potential for the movement for black power escalated. Thus, the struggle was transformed from an internal, isolated, one against an apparently invincible ruling class into a component of a world component part of a worldwide revolutionary struggle against a common imperialist enemy. U.S. defeats in China, Korea, Cuba, and then Vietnam further exploded the myth of U.S. invincibility. 
many black power militants drew upon the experiences of the third world liberation struggles in developing a strategy for the movement there, as well as as many instances, openly expressing solidarity with the liberation struggles in Vietnam, Palestine, and Africa. This anti-imperialist outlook reflected the rising mood of the times. Thus, the revolt's development confirmed our thesis that the black... Black movement would inevitably take a national revolutionary anti-imperialist direction, culminating in the demand for political power in the areas of black concentration. Far from being far from being simply a fight for reforms, as the revisionists claimed, the black liberation movement sparked a became a spark, a catalyst pushing forward the whole working class and people struggle in the US. The later point underscored the treacherous depths of the revisionist betrayal. CPUSA did not even begin to attempt to mobilize labor support for the black struggle, and the labor aristocracy maintained hegemony over the workers' movement. Thus, abandoned to its leadership of the chauvinist bureaucrats, sharp divisions were sown between black and white workers. This was in clear contrast to the unity built by communists in the 30s, when the party and the working class had played a leading role in fighting for the special demands of blacks, making the Scottsboro Boys a household word from the tenements of New York to the ghettos of Watts. Though the revolutionary outlook of the organization of communists never became the leading factor in the revolt, the movement nonetheless made considerable gains in the course of its development. As I see it, the revolt developed in three periods. The first began with the Montgomery bus boycott of 1955-56. to and ended with the 1963 March on Washington. This latter protest event brought its wake, brought in its wake a widespread disillusionment with the reformist, legalistic, and nonviolent strategy of such organizations such as the SCLC, the Urban League, and the NAACP. The growing isolation of these responsible leaders and the breakup of the Kennedy-backed Civil Rights Coalition, the Big Five, the SNCC, the SCLC, the CORE, Urban League, and the NAACP, and the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, ushered in the second phase of the milit- of militant open revolt. This period was marked by widespread rebellions in cities and the demand for black power. Palakian and Lenin's vanguard linked to the masses, the movement at this point was unconsolidated. Its nationalist leadership split into a variety of petty bourgeois tendencies, separatist, pan-Africanist, cultural nationalist, and even some terrorist tendencies. Thus, the bourgeoisie was able to usher in a third phase by buying off the right wing of the black power movement and establishing its own brokers within it. In 1969, the Black Power Conference in Newark, which was generously funded by the Ford Foundation, was the signal that this phase of the movement had begun in earnest. From the courtroom to the streets, 1955 to 63. The stage for the Black Revolt was set in 1954, the year of the Supreme Court decision outlawing school segregation. This decision, historic in its effect upon the future of the Black movement, was a tactical concession forced by the rising movement at home and especially by criticisms of Jim Crow from third world and socialist countries. NAACP leaders, however, hailed the decision as a vindication of their legalistic policies. For its part, the federal government gave hardcore Southern reactionaries the opportunity to organize and unleash the most planned and uh, and purposeful campaign of anti-Black terror since the defeat of Reconstruction. In response, the Black movement in the South burst out from under the wraps of the old elite leaderships of the NAACP and took on a mass character, defying segregation laws and directly attacking the Jim Crow system. The spark was ignited in the Montgomery, Alabama bus boycott of 1955-56 under the leadership of Martin Luther King. The flame spread. In 1960, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the SNCC, began sit-in demonstrations which swept the South. Freedom writers under the leadership of the 
of the Congress for Racial Equality, CORE, took over the spotlight in 61 and won national support for their campaign to integrate transportation facilities. In the spring of 63, the struggle reached a high point in the Battle of Birmingham and from there leaped over regional boundaries and spread throughout the country, uniting various classes and strata of Black people under the slogan of Freedom Now. The movement exerted tremendous attractive power on all sections of the population, especially the youth, drawing sections of the white community into support and participation. The summer of 64 saw hundreds of college students travel to Mississippi to participate in a voter registration project. It was also in the South Carolina in the South that the armed defense movement was initiated in North Carolina by Robert Williams, whose NAACP local was suspended for these activities. Based upon black workers and war veterans and other armed groups like the Deacons for Defense and Justice in Louisiana and Mississippi won important victories against the KKK in the mid-60s. It was during the Meredith March through Mississippi, which was protected by the Deacons, that the slogan of Black Power first gained national prominence in 1966. As Chairman Mao wrote, the movement became a new clarion call to all the exploited and oppressed peoples of the United States to fight against the barbarous rule of the monopoly capitalist class. Movements developed among students and women, Chicano, Native American, and Puerto Rican people, as well as among activists against the Vietnam War. Alarm bordering on panic struck the ruling class. Time magazine expressed the fear that the civil rights movement will crash beyond the framework of passive resistance into a new dangerous dimension. U.S. efforts to build a neo-colonial empire in the Third World were further impaired as a grotesque contrast between its high-flown moral posture and the brutal reality of an organized system of racist barbarism nurtured within its own borders was further exposed. Racist police employing such methods as electric prodding irons police dogs, high-pressure hoses, and the brutal beating of women provoked angry outrage throughout the world. Its impact was especially felt in Africa, where concern about racism in the United States was expressed by the Addis Ababa Conference of African Ministers. Alarm of, right, alarm of white ruling circles was also reflected among the top leadership of the NAACP and other reformist organizations. In order to maintain their role as honest brokers between the black masses and white rulers, they had been forced to grant some autonomy to the Southern District dis dissident wing led by King and the SCLC. Representing ministers in the black bourgeoisie of the South, King favored a policy of nonviolent mass action, but he in turn was faced with a growing challenge from more radical elements of the movement, especially in the youth of the SNCC, sections of CORE, and the NAACP youth. The shock troops of the revolt, it was among these frontline fighters that the inherent conflict between King's nonviolent philosophy and the direct mass action first came to a head. Under conditions prevailing in the Deep South, direct mass action and civil disobedience campaigns could develop and grow only if accompanied by organized self-armed self-defense. In renouncing self-defense, the movement inevitably reached an impasse there. In situations like the heroic but unsuccessful Battle of Albany, Georgia, the moral and political bankruptcy of making nonviolence a principle was revealed. In Jackson, Mississippi, even after the assassination of NAACP leader Medgar Evers, little or no progress was made. Similarly, in Greensboro, North Carolina, 2,000 demonstrators were jailed over the integration of two restaurants. And in Birmingham, the South's most important bastion of white supremacy, it was 14 years until a token of indictment was brought against a few of the child-murdering bombers. The upsurge of the 1963 of 1963 resulted in gains in other parts of the country, but practically none in the Deep South. Even in the victories that were that were won in desegregation and legal reforms, 
produced no improvement on, in the conditions of poor and working blacks. In the 15-year period between 1949 and 1964, the median annual income for non-white farmers increased from $1,650 to $3,800, while the median income for white families increased from $3,200 to more than $6,800 during the same period. The disparity between white and non-white annual income in 1949 had been less than $1,600. By 1964, the gap was more than $3,000. During the economic crisis of 1958 to 64, the government admitted that the black unemployment was above the 10% mark and the black-white ratio of unemployment rate was boosted from 1.6 in 1948 to 2 or 2.5 in the early 50s on. Black youth were hardest hit of all. Between the two good years of 1957 to 64, their unemployment increased 51%. At the same time, that one out of every six young Blacks was driven out of the official labor force. These experiences cast doubt on the whole program of peaceful democratic integration. Riding the tiger of the Black Revolt, King and fellow advocates of nonviolence were rescued by President Kennedy. Trying to walk a tightrope between the hardcore Dixiecrat defiance and the surging Black militancy, the administration sought to divert the mass movement in, back into the legalistic channels by proposing a civil rights bill. The bill declared, the bill's declared purpose was to get the Black movement off the street and back into the courtroom where the hundred years of litigation promised by the Southern governors could proceed. Instead of the militant protest originally planned, the 1963 March on Washington was converted into a peaceful demonstration in support of the President's Civil Rights Bill. But even this much-vaunted march could not succeed in diverting the rising tide of rebellion. It did, however, openly expose the masses of the collusion between the Kennedy administration and men like Whitney Young of the Urban League, Roy Wilkins of the NAACP, and A. Philip Randolph. At the same time, the March leaders censored John Lewis's speech for SNCC because it attacked Kennedy's civil rights bill. Malcolm X showed how the government used bribery to bring these reformist leaders to its aid in controlling the masses in the March on Washington. When they, the administration, found out that this black steamroller was going to come down on the Capitol, they called in Wilkins, they called in Randolph, and they called in these national black leaders that you respect and told them, call it off, Kennedy said. Look, you all are letting this thing go too far. And old Tom said, boss, I can't stop it because I didn't start it. I'm telling you what they said. They said, I'm not even in it, much less at the head of it. They said, these blacks are doing these things on their own. They're running ahead of us. And that shrewd, that old shrewd fox, he said, if you all aren't in it, I'll put you in it. I'll put you at the head of it. I'll endorse it. I'll welcome it. I'll help it. I'll join it. Black power. Following this event, mass rejection of peaceful democratic integration became apparent in the growing wave of ghetto rebellions. There were 24 in 1964, 38 in 66, 167, and 131 in the first half of 68, the year of King's assassination. These urban uprisings put into sharp focus the alienation of the black masses from the old line leaders like Roy Wilkins, A. Philip Randolph, and Bayard Rustin. As the Kerner Report lament lamented, those who came forward to discourage rioting may have had no influence with the rioters. The report also contained another ploy of the bourgeoisie, designed to get itself off the hook. It charged, what white Americans have never understood, but what the black can never forget, is that white society is deeply implicated in the ghetto. White institutions created it, white institutions maintained it, and white society condones it. By blaming everyone, including the masses of white working people, the ruling class, in effect, blamed no one and covered up their own crimes. 
Black Power came became the rallying cry of the uprisings because it summed up the main lessons learned by the mass masses during the civil rights phase of the movement. Legal rights meant nothing without the political power to enforce them. Black Power expressed the growing consciousness of the Afro-American masses that they are an oppressed nation whose road to freedom and equality lies through taking political power into their own hands. Thus, Blacks should become the controlling force in the the area of major concentration, the urban ghettos of the North, as well as the Black Belt area of the South. The emergence of Black Power as a mass slogan signaled the fundamental turning point in the modern Afro-American liberation struggle, carrying it to the threshold of a new phase. It marked a basic shift in content and direction of the movement, from civil rights to national liberation, with a corresponding realignment of social forces. It indicated that the Black Revolt had crashed beyond the limited goals set by the old guard reformists, the assimilationist leadership of the NAACP and associates, beyond the the strictures of Reverend King's nonviolent holding operation, into channels leading into direct confrontation with the main enemy, the white power oligarchy of the imperialists. Inevitably, this struggle moved towards the junk towards juncture with the anti-imperialist revolutionaries in the third world and the working class movement for socialism. The vehicle of revolt was an indigenous grassroots nationalism upsurging from the poor and working class masses of urban ghettos and the poor and dispossessed farmers and sharecroppers of the Black Belt. The movement reflected their strivings to break out of the bind of racist economic and cultural subjugation, to establish for themselves the dignity of a free and equal people. Here was the mass base of the SNCC, the Black Panther Party, which raised the question of armed self-defense for the urban ghettos and popularized the writings of Mao Zedong, Malcolm X, recently split from Black Muslims, and other revolutionary nationalists. Afro-Americans were caught up in an assertive drive for a viable collective identity adapted to the peculiar conditions of their further development in the U.S. and their African background. Further, it was to drive it was a drive to recover a cultural heritage shaped by our, by over 300 years of chattel slavery and a century of thwarted freedom. This quest for identity as a people in its own right led to even greater segments of the Afro-American community to a fundamental reassessment of their actual status as an oppressed nation. Virtual captives in the metrop- metropolitan heartland of one of the world's most powerful and predatory imperialist powers. A growing body of young Black radical intellectuals assumed an active role in fostering Black power nationalism. Their efforts reflecting the spirit of the masses produced a new cultural renaissance, surpassing that of the 20s. The vanguard was an angry, alienated Black youth, a proud, sensitive young generation, which refused to stagnate and die in a system which sought to destroy it. The above developments led to a mass defection from the old guard leadership, which became morally and politically isolated from the masses. The trend of Black power nationalism rose to dominate the Black community in the second phase of the struggle. The nationalism of the 60s differed from the Garvey movement and its later-day later spiritual descendants, the Black Muslims, Neo-Garveyites, and others. In the main, the Black power movement called for escapist with, not for escapist withdrawal, but for a fight here where Blacks live. Among some narrow nationalist sects, however, the old backward utopianism persisted. The leadership of the Black Power movement, while having a profound and positive effect on the struggles for black, of the Black masses, displayed its own major weakness, that of being primarily based in the Black intelligentsia and the petty bourgeoisie. This was, inevitably, this was inevitable in the face of the CPUSA's defection. The movement was hamstrung in attempting to fight U.S. imperialism without the benefit of a program of class struggle. It also deeply underestimated the potential strength of unity of the overall workers, 
movement in achieving the goals of national struggle. These weaknesses combined to the ability of the U.S. corporate establishment to temporarily cool out and buy off the black upsurge by employing both reformist and narrow nationalist schemes. At first, the black power activists submerged class conflicts in the movement. But soon, a right wing emerged with its space in in a sector of the ghetto bourgeoisie. Businessmen, ministers, professionals, poverty project leaders, black studies professors, newly hired lower management and token upper management. This right wing found its spokesman in elite intellectuals like Roy Innes, Floyd McKissick, and Harold Cruz. They aspired to the role of economic and political administrators of, of a black internal colony, still owned and controlled by white monopoly capitalism. Co-opting a right wing. This perspective of pursuing the black bourgeoisie's class interests within an imperialist framework was not fundamentally different from the integrationism of the old guard black leaders. The more nimble members of this group hopped on the bandwagon, while others like Whitney Young kept a foot in both camps. This emerging black right wing was met halfway by a white establishment in search of new allies. Facing defeats abroad and burning cities at home, the establishment was haunted by the specter of a national rebellion in its urban nerve centers. As George, as Mick George Bundy pointed out, if blacks burn the cities, the white man's companies will have to take the losses. This new kind of broker spoke the language of the black power movement and might better lead into safe channels, away from the confrontations which threaten domestic tranquility and international credibility. So the buffer zone between the establishment of the black masses was extended to include the new right-wing nationalists and their social base. A wide range of corporate leaders united behind this strategy, bringing into play their tremendous power of co-option and manipulation. This does not mean that the bourgeoisie gave up their old line leadership, but rather they concentrated their efforts on a right-wing nationalist in this particular period. Bundy's Ford Foundation led the way, putting some of of Core's leadership on the payroll. The establishment and its new allies moved to redefine black power in its more acceptable terms. Harvard's Kennedy Institute of Politics defined self-determination to mean a community development corp, corporations and tax incentives for investors in the ghetto. Roy Ennis endorsed this formula. The 50 corporations jointly sponsored two black power conferences under Nathan Wright's leadership. To Wright, black power meant black capitalism, or as he expressed it, the most strategic opportunity which our American capitalistic system has to preserve or strengthen itself lies in the possibility of providing the black community with both a substantial and immediate stake in its operation at every level. In fact, black capitalism was the centerpiece of the political elite strategy. This included a stepped-up policy of piecemeal concessions to contain and reverse the revolutionary trend by buying up and corrupting potential and actual community leaders. Richard Nixon articulated the strategy in 1968. What most of the militants are asking is not separation, but to be included in, not as supplicants, but as owners, as entrepreneurs, to have a share of wealth in the piece of the action. Sections of the ghetto, entrepreneurs, and professionals were ready to misuse the collective strength of the black community to get a piece of the action. The crisis of and ebbing of the black power nationalist movement was precipitated by the rise of the thoroughly reformist trend, which was backed back directly by the imperialists. This new black elite moved systematically to take over the movement, sap its revolutionary potential, and restrict it, restrict it to goals which U.S. capitalism was willing to concede. In this, they were aided by a growing apparatus of repression, police, 
FBI, CIA, National Guard, and Army intelligence, which murdered, jailed, and suppressed many uncooperative leaders. This came on the heels of the Nix of Nixon's Law and Order, White Blacklash Campaign of 1968. The full story of intrigue, murder, and character assassination, splitism, and provocative activities is now only beginning to come to light. The exposure of the FBI's notorious COINTELPRO operations was but the tip of the iceberg. Where were the forces to give leadership to the movement in the face of this both open and covert assault by the imperialists? Certainly they were not to be found in the CPUSA, which made every effort to attack and downgrade the movement. James Jackson summed up the basic attitude of the CPUSA toward nationalism in a recent article. The main function of nationalism, he wrote, whatever its form, our emphasis, is to split and divide and fragment the international working class and the advanced contingents of the national liberation movements. Genuine communists, of course, must distinguish between the nationalism of the oppressed, oppressor nation and that of the oppressed, as well as between nationalism progressive and backwards aspects. Without the leadership of a genuine communist party, the limitations of a nationalist outlook, as I've already shown, became clear. Its leadership was unable to make a, a class analysis of the black community, thus overestimating the unity between the black masses and the black bourgeoisie, while underestimating the need to uni for unity with the general workers' movement. To be sure, the upsurge spurred the political development of the black proletariat, building on the foundations laid by the black caucus movement of the post-World War II period. Beginning in the early 60s, a new wave of black caucuses sprung up in basic industries across the country, reaching perhaps their highest political development in the Detroit League of the Revolutionary Black Workers. But in the final analysis, the treachery of the Dennis Hall clique prevented black workers and the working class as a whole from playing a consistently independent and leading role as a class force during this period. I believe that if we had had a revolutionary party in the 60s, that much of the spontaneity and reactionary nationalism of the period could have been combated. Undoubtedly, the ruling class would still have tried to split the black power movement, but the left wing could not, would not have been nearly wiped out as an organization force in the black community. If the CPUSA hadn't liquidated communist work in the South and in the factories, the 60s would have been a consolidated proletarian force emerge, would have seen a consolidated proletarian force emerge in the Black Belt and, and the ghettos. The communist forces could have come out of the revolt with the developed cadres rooted in the factories and co communities with credibility among the masses. The Road Ahead Despite such shortcomings, the 60s revolt did force concessions from the ruling class, breaking down a great deal of legal and occupational Jim Crow, enlarging the black middle class, and extending the franchise to blacks in the South. But have these gains exhausted the revolutionary potential of the black movement? Have the mechanization of Southern agriculture, massive outmigration from the black belt, and civil rights laws wiped out the consequences of the old plantation system? More importantly, have these changes wiped out the existence of an oppressed black nation in the Deep South, as so many have claimed? Is the right of self-determination for the black belt nation still a demand that communists should raise? Let's take a look at the current conditions. Despite the imperialist offensive against the black masses, which resulted on, in tremendous outmigration from the black belt homeland, there remains a stable community of black people in the rural South and a growing black population in the urban areas. The actual number of blacks had steadily increased. In 1940, there were over 9 million black people in the South, and by 1970, the number had increased to nearly 12 million. Over 70% of all black people in the U.S. were born in the South and still have roots there. Within the Black Belt territory itself, despite fierce economic and political coercion, 
there has still remained since 1930 a stable community of over 5 million. The escape valve into northern cities is being closed by the crisis and out-migration from the south has slowed considerably, with reverse migration now beginning becoming the dominant trend. It is no accident that the civil rights movement first arose in the South, where Blacks faced the most terroristic oppression and often denied even the most basic democratic rights. In fact, the mechanization of agriculture, which drove so many Blacks off the land in the South, provided one of the main fueling sources of the rebellion. SNCC did some of its best work in its southern rural projects, where it took up the struggles of sharecroppers and the displaced peasantry. Today, the spiraling inflation and recession of the worst crisis in 40 years still hits Blacks hardest. The victims of continued last hired, first fired policies and an unemployment rate twice that of whites. Recent statistics show the highest rate of unemployment among Blacks youth since World War II, while at the same time there have been a cutbacks in Black studies and other affirmative action programs. The result is yet another lost generation of Black youth condemned to the margins of the workforce. Once again, the sensitive youth, ghetto youth, and students are becoming a flashpoint for all the contradictions of the system. In the midst of the biggest strike wave in 20 years, the ruling class is desperately trying to exacerbate existing great differences. This movement for the new rise of anti-busing and segregationist movements in northern cities, the rise of memberships of the Ku Klux Klan, and, an, and the increasing attacks on social welfare and affirmative action programs. The crisis is also undermining the existence of the expanded black middle class, which was created by the ruling class strategy of concessions during the boom years of the 60s. Business failures and service cutbacks are weakening this group economically, while fascist attacks and growing class divisions inside the black community are eroding the political credibility of black elected officials. And cities like Atlanta, Detroit, and Newark, where black mayors have been elected, the living and working conditions among blacks have continued to deteriorate far from indicating the attainment of real political power for Afro-Americans. These politicians have been elected merely to serve as administrators for the white power structure. This domestic situation is combined with an international situation more explosive than in the 60s, symbolized particularly by the fierce liberation struggles in the Southern Africa and the increasing threat of war between the two superpowers. It is only a matter of time before the smoldering embers of Black Revolt burst into flame again. As Lenin pointed out, capitalism is not so harmoniously built that the various sources of rebellion can immediately merge of their own accord, without reverses and defeats. Whenever the next black upsurge comes, whether as part of a general revolutionary upsurge or as a signal of the movement to come, we must be prepared to bring out mass support for equality and self-determination as a special feature of the struggle for socialism. Most assuredly, the next wave of mass struggle will begin in a higher level of consciousness, based on what the last upsurge taught, the masses about the nature of the enemy and the path to liberation. In fact, the revolt sparked an irreversible growth of Black national consciousness and brought forward a new generation of revolutionaries. A section of this movement has turned to the best experiences of the socialist countries in fighting for equality of na nations and nationalities. These fighters have become part of a growing body of cadres of the anti-revisionist communist movement. In this regard, a great deal has been learned from the People's Republic of China, its communist party, and its great leader, Mao Zedong. The emphasis on testing ideas in practice, care, and flexibility, and applying united front tactics, of relying upon the people, 
realism in dealing with power relationships, respect for the integrity of national minorities, and for the rights of the third world nations against the great nation chauvinism, the concrete analysis and application of Marxist-Leninist principles to one's own country, and the pursuing of the two-line political struggle for the par- inside the party are all part of China's great legacy. For me, this has been a cause of great optimism for the future, especially for the new generation of communists. This generation, without left without guideposts after the betrayal of the CP, was forced to start almost from scratch. It has carried out a long march through the mass struggles of the 60s to recapture our revolutionary heritage. It is heartening that they, along with some of us veteran fighters, are building a genuine communist party, the first in this country in decades. To this new revolutionary movement falls the task of giving leadership to the coming upsurge. The ever-deepening crisis and the increased threat of war between the two superpowers are affecting the living conditions of the broad masses of the American people. At the same time, the ability of the imperialist and labor aristocracy to grant concessions and thus buy off dissent has been somewhat hampered by the crisis. Under such conditions, and with the leadership of the new party, there is a strong possibility of building up movement based on the alliance between Blacks and other nationalities and the working class. As Chairman Mao wrote in 1968, the struggle of the Black people in the United States is bound to merge with the American workers' movement, and this will eventually end the criminal rule of the U.S. monopoly capitalist class. I hope that this book, which sums up some of my experiences and that many and that of many other comrades will make some contribution to this lofty goal. End of the epilogue of Black Bolshevik, as well as the end of Black Bolshevik. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Book Club Commune, and I hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you all to everyone who have sat through sat through all 23 episodes of Black Bolshevik and have, and have come with me on this journey. Although we are finished with uh, Black Bolshevik, I'm not quite done with Haywood. It feels a bit, you know, wrong to say, finished Black Bolshevik, time to move on to the next book. So I'm actually going to be reading some articles from Marxist.org that Harry Haywood has written during his life. So I'm going to be reading those next. Um, and those will just be two short episodes of me just reading those essays, maybe long, depending on how long the essays are. Afterwards, my plan is to jump into some Mao. I have a copy of Mao's Collected Works, which is the real, which is the edition that was written by Zizek, which has the horrific foreword, which I'm going to skip. I'm going to be reading through that, and I'll be recording that. Um, I haven't forgot about Reform or Revolution. I will get back to that at some point. Within the next few weeks, I will get back to recording that, which I am looking forward to as well. So that is what you have to look forward to in future Book Club Commune episodes. But everyone, take a second, pat yourself on the back for sitting through how many hours it took to get through Black Bolshevik. Uh, I know it wasn't quite as, you know, if you've gotten through Capital, this is nothing but still. Again, thank you everyone for listening to the Book Club Commune. Now that Black Bolshevik is finished, please be sure to share this entire uh, section with people who wanted to listen to Black Bolshevik. And it's now that it's completely finished, you can share it with people and, and they don't have to wait for it to come out. And they could just sit down, listen to all of it, and it'd be done with. Please like and share it uh, wherever you can. It's a big help to me trying to spread it. That's all I have to say. Solidarity forever and keep on reading.